Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreaux, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, disparities in health care and immigration. We'll also talk about the impact of our Harlem community on arts and culture and where City College uh, fits into that. Um, I'll say Harlem has a rich and colorful history in the arts. Starting in the 1910s through the mid-1930s, thousands of African Americans migrated north, many of them settling in Harlem. Um, And they brought those Harlem residents a rich culture of writing, singing, dancing, and theatrical performance. That era was called the Harlem Renaissance. It's the golden age of African American culture. Now, the central figure in the Harlem Renaissance was a writer and poet Langston Hughes. Known as a pioneer of blues and jazz poetry, Hughes was an activist poet. He wrote plays, a novel, two autobiographies, and newspaper columns, all of which depicted urban African-American life. With the publication of his first volume of poetry, The Weary Blues, in 1926, he inaugurated a tradition of poetry inflected with jazz, blues, and Afrocentric rhythms. He was the Poet Laureate of Harlem. Now, since 1978, City College has hosted a Langston Hughes Festival to honor the literary legacy of Hughes and to give the Langston Hughes Medal to some of the most distinguished writers of African ancestry. And we're going to be hearing a little bit more about that lineage uh, later in the program. This year, on February 9th, uh, 2023, City College will award the Langston Hughes Medal to Lynn Nottage, the first woman in history to win two Pulitzer Prizes for drama. We will talk to Ms. Nottage on the second half of the show. On the first half of the show, Jody Ann Francis, Associate Director of the Black Studies Program here at City College and moderator of the Langston Hughes Festival, will tell us about that festival. So let me tell you a little bit about her. As Associate Director of the Black Studies Program at City College, Jody Ann Francis has curated readings with prominent African and African diasporic figures in the literary world, like Pushcart Prize-winning poet Kwame Dawes, former South African president Iglema Petrus Mutland, and the family of author Chinua Echebe. She was a fellow with both the Harvard Future of Work Cross-Study and Harvard Sustainability Council, HGSE. Both organizations explore the intersection between education, technology, diversity, and labor trends using case studies in public universities and community colleges. Ms. Francis is also a writer, blogger, and artist who has collaborated with the Brick Arts Media, the Apollo Theater, Bronx Council of the Arts, the Harlem Arts Council, and Caribbean Media, the blog. She's a proud CCNY alum and serves on the advisory committee of the Langston Hughes Festival. Ms. Francis, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you so much, President Rousseau. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you to tell us something about the festival. It's been around for decades. It revolves each year around a specific honoree. But can you give us a taste of the different authors who have received the Langston Hughes Medal over the the various decades? Absolutely. I'll quote Langston Hughes himself. He said, hold fast the dream, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. The Langston Hughes Festival is in its 44th year and still dreaming to celebrate, since 1978, the distinguished writers associated with Africa and the African diaspora. 
This year is no different. We continue to use this legacy by recognizing Lynn Nottage. To give a taste of the writers we have honored in the past, we have honored James Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, Chinua Achebe, Derek Walcott, Edwidge Dondekott, Jacqueline Woodson, Rita Dove, and Jamaica Kincaid. And that's just the name of few. Jody, that is a, a kind of living, breathing ancestry of the greats uh, in African and African-American literature. I remember the very first time I ever saw Chinua Achebe, who was one of my heroes. The very first African novel I ever read was Ake, his account of growing up uh, in Africa. And, and there he was at City College. So it, it's a tremendous festival. What would somebody who comes to our Langston Hughes Festival, you heard me inviting the world a few minutes ago to this festival, what would they see? What does the day look like? So this program this year aims to highlight both the contributions and legacy of Langston Hughes, as well as honor Hughes's legacy and its impact by recognizing um, our celebrated playwright, Lynn Nottage. The program is a day-long celebration of Nottage's work, and it will be held on February 9th in Aaron Davis Hall. It includes a symposium at 12.30 p.m., which includes panelists such as CCNY's very own historian, Dr. Lori Woodard, 2017 Whitting Award winner for her debut um, fiction, We Love You, Charlie Freeman, Caitlin Greenwich, and famed playwright, Chiara Alegria, known for her play In the Heights. This symposium aims to both engage Nottage's work from varying perspectives, underscore how it continues to mine for the legacy of Langston Hughes, and simply to enjoy the brilliance of Nottage's work and how it is significant in the lives of contemporary society today. As the Associate Director of the Black Studies Program, I wonder if you can um, talk a little bit about how the festival and the tradition of the festival fits into the larger work that you do at the college as the Associate Director of the Black Studies Program. The Langston Hughes Festival is fully in line and actually centers the mission of the Black Studies program here at the City College. As one of the like oldest and largest Black Studies program in the United States, we were founded in 1969. We aim to serve as a hub for academic discussions, engage new research on African and African diasporas, and foster a community, really, that creates a lifelong learner, citizen, hoping to improve and engage critically in a setting that continues to forge ahead in becoming a department and the legacy of Langston Hughes to continue, and as you say, President Boudreau, impact the city and the world. So celebrating the literary works of African-American, African diasporic writers is one way to collect the work that we do on campus to the culture and the history of our Harlem neighborhood. How important is that in, in the way you approach uh, the subject of black studies? I mean, in terms of your students' interest, you know, what they do once they graduate. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, it's no accident that the, you know, the oldest black studies program in the country is located in the cultural mecca for African Americans in the United States, Harlem. Can you talk a little bit about that connection and how it reflects in your work? Yes, absolutely. Celebrating great literary works is a path of connection, and that is at the heart of Black Studies, is connection, not only for our campus 
our students, our collective history. It honors Harlem, it honors ourselves, and it honors great work. The celebration is really a bridge, and we honor that bridge. It's a bridge between learning, it's a bridge between engagement, and it's a legacy. It's a legacy of created work that highlights the lives, the past, present, and ultimate future of both our students, the residents of Harlem, and the world. So now let's talk a little bit about this year's festival and this year's honoree. You were on the selection committee. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like, what the committee considers, and, and what it was specifically about Lynn Nottage's work that captured your imagination and attention? It's interesting to being um, on that advisory committee and choosing between just a, an amazing selection of work that is out there. But each year, the Langston Hughes Festival Committee gets together. We look through works of major writers from Africa and the African diaspora whose work is accessed and has likely having a lasting impact on the world of literature and writing. And so Ms. Nottage's work captured our attention because it is simply intriguing. The characters in her plays are beautifully convoluted and pushes us to interrogate deep, what we considered social truth, right? And her plays, musicals and operas, always focuses on working class people. As, as we are at City College and we consider ourselves the Harvard of the proletariat, it, it centers us, really. And often, working class people who are Black, and it privileges them in their full humanity, which is, is, is quite a breath. So we are honored to have her this year on February 9th as this year's recipient and legacy of Langston Hughes. Well, that is as good uh, a transition as I could hope for. We do have Lynn Nottage with us today on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Welcome her to the show. Ms. Nottage is a playwright and a screenwriter and the first woman in history to win two Pulitzer Prizes for drama. Her recent work includes the book for MJ the Musical on Broadway, the libretto for the opera Intimate Apparel, the performance installation of The Watering Hole. She's currently preparing a production of Clyde's for the Berkeley Rep in California. This past fall, by the way, it was announced that Clyde's is the most produced play in the current 2022-2023 season all across the country. Some of her past work includes Sweat, a, a show that we just recently put on at City College, Ruined, and the book for The Secret Life of Bees. Ms. Nottage is the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant Fellowship and other awards. She is an associate professor at Columbia University School of the Arts and is a member of the Dramatists Guild. Ms. Nottage, welcome to From City to the World. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Really a pleasure to have you on the show, and it will be a great honor to have you at the Langston Hughes Festival. I'm going to do this first, and then we will come back for uh, for you and I to talk a little bit. I want to start out by asking you about the process of, of you developing the characters in, in your work. Anyone who, who pays attention to your plays immediately sees how careful you are in the construction of your characters, how complexly they're drawn. And I was struck uh, reading one article about you where it mentioned that you spend a great deal of time, sometimes years, 
interviewing people as you develop your characters. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process, what what it gives you as you're as you're putting characters together. Um, sure. I never interviewed people for a play until I began doing research for my play Ruined, which was um, set in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And initially, I had wanted it to be a modern adaptation of Bertolt Brecht's um, Mother Courage, huh. and, which would have been set during the protracted wars that was happening in the DRC. And I began searching for stories about what was happening to women, and I couldn't find any. And so I spoke to director Kate Worski and my husband, Tony Gerben. I said, well, if we're going to tell this story, I think that we actually have to travel to East Africa and interview the women directly. And we found ourselves on a plane and 24 hours later in East Africa sitting with women who were fleeing that armed conflict found themselves on either the border of Uganda or in in Kampala, and I asked them questions which were related to Mother Courage, and one of the questions was always, what does the word Mother Courage mean to you? And it was really quite arresting and emotional to watch how those women held that word in their mouth, transformed it, and said, yes, Mother Courage. And at that moment, I realized that there was a story that was not connected to Bertolt Brecht's Mother Courage that was very specific to um, what was happening into the, um, in that moment and very specific to the continent of Africa. And so I'm going to have to immerse myself and do the research. And I subsequently ended up going back to East Africa two other times and was really fortunate. My husband is a documentary filmmaker, and he really mentored me through the process of doing interviews. And one of the things that he said is that you have to lead with emphasis and you always have to give your subject something, is that it has to be a fair exchange, that you can't ask people to open up their hearts without opening up your heart to them. And so I think that that really became the foundation for the way in which I sense approached interviewing people. I want to explore this a little bit. When I was uh, a, a political scientist. I spent lots of years interviewing activists in Southeast Asia and, and really struggled sometimes with this question of, I'm asking these people to tell me really difficult, really personal things about their lives, and I don't know what I'm giving back to them. I would try to talk about how the work I was doing would somehow contribute or advance the things that valued to them. I never really felt that that was a sufficient answer. And I wonder what kind of answers you come up with if you have the same kinds of questions. You know, I, I do, and I certainly was one of the, the my dilemmas when you're asking people really to bear their hearts, and sometimes the stories that you're telling are very, very difficult for them to, to share. It's like, what can I give you in exchange? And one of the things that I always said to people is that I'm not a, a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a human rights activist. What I am is a storyteller. And what I can do is listen to your story from beginning to end. And I can be that witness. And that's what I gave them. I gave them an ear. And what I found is so many of the women in particular felt unheard and felt unseen. And just the mere act of sitting down and listening was enough for them. And that's a characterization that you could probably extend across 
almost the full range of the characters that you draw in your plays. These are carefully drawn stories of people who are not used to being listened to or heard authentically. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk just a little bit about about Sweat. Um, as I said, we produced it recently at City College. Really such a compelling story. And I think one of the things that struck me about it is that's an incredibly understanding portrait of post-industrial, I say anger, but it's more than anger. It's 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 a sense of, of, of being deserted in a way as well. And it, it's, it's as sympathetic a portrait as I can think of viewed from sort of, if you would accept this characterization from the outside of that, of that world. And I, I wonder how difficult that was for you to arrive at, at, at that sympathy with that experience, that set of experiences. Yeah, I think that I arrived at that place because I immersed myself in that community and I really tried to get to know people, not on a superficial level, but just to understand where they were, were coming from. And I have a phrase that I always lean into, which is replacing judgment with curiosity. And when I began interviewing people who would ultimately become the inspiration for sweat, I tried very hard to do what I feel I'm good at, which is to listen to what they were saying, even if what they were saying was very difficult to hear. And I also wanted to figure out how to capture the complexities of a community that had truly been fractured across racial and economic lines without diminishing their humanity and figure out how I can be compassionate and empathetic um, to even the people who challenged me on so many different levels. There's a masterful article uh, about you. It's included in the series in the New York Times, The Greats, and you're the first great that uh, Susan Dominus is, is the writer. And, and at one point, she's asking you about the book that you're putting together around MJ the musical. And the musical is set right around the time in his life when uh, allegations of, of sexual misconduct are, are, are starting to emerge. And so she's she's kind of asking you about about that and how that factors in your work. And you say something like, um, you know, your job is not to interrogate his guilt. Your job is to unpack his art. And and I wonder, you know, what drew your eye to that part of the story? And, and, and what did you ultimately find as you were, as you were looking at that, at his artistic process at that moment in his life? Um, sure. I mean, Michael Jackson is one of the defining musical stars of the 20th century. I mean, he changed pop music. And so for me, I was very interested in just the anatomy of an artist. Is like, how did this boy from Gary, Indiana, go from living in a tiny home to standing on the top of the world and redefining how we look at and and listen to, to music. And I felt that in many ways that story hadn't been told. And there is so much emphasis on the complexities of Michael Jackson. And I think that there is also a story to be told about that. And I think that there's someone who will do a very good job. But what I was interested in was who he was as a pioneering voice in, in music and how music really shaped every aspect of his life, including some of the more difficult parts of it. What did you discover in, in his artistic process, in his art? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found which was really fascinating is that he was an, an absolutely uncompromising perfectionist. And I think that that was at the core of everything that he did. And I think that sometimes his perfectionism drove him to the point of distraction and destruction. You know, I think that one of the other things that I found interesting was that he was such a generous philanthropist and that so much of what he did um, was to raise money to give back. And I think that that's an aspect of his life that's often overlooked. And I think the other thing that's often overlooked is how in control he was of his craft and how in control, until he was out of control, he was of his image in the media. Yeah, yeah. What a what an interesting juxtaposition that is. You know, to to be so uh, focused on on what your what your craft is, and totally unable to control the narrative about who you are. There are various films that show him during the filming of that, you know, the ensemble, uh, We Are the World, and, and yeah. just watching him react to the inability of some of those artists to kind of pull it together, it's hysterical, but, but you see how uncompromising he is in trying to get the sound he wants. And he's working with some of the best in the industry, and yeah. he's, he's out of patience with them. Well, I also think that he was as hard on himself as he was on others. I think that he, um, his father pushed him, and he developed certain skills that didn't permit him at some point to step outside of his drive for perfection. I mean, that became what defined him. You've um, made your most indelible mark to date as a playwright, but you're more broadly an artist. As I read your introduction, you're working on the libretto, you've got, you know, interview skills, you've incorporated film and even journalism into your work. But you're also a kind of relentless activist. And you know, again, going back to some of the people that I used to talk to in Southeast Asia who were activists first. I remember doing interviews with the New People's Army and they would have all kinds of sort of semi-legal organizations associated with, you know, what was an insurgency at the time. And, and, and a lot of them, or some of them, were artistic organizations. And I remember talking to actors and musicians and writers associated with those artistic groups, and, and the political line was always primary in their work, and to the point where some of them were frustrated that they had to, you know, artistry had to take a back seat to politics. And you know, I don't know that you've characterized yourself as an activist. Everybody who writes about you certainly does. And I wonder how the activist and the artist sort of coexist in you and in your work. Oh, what what a, a lovely question. For me, I, and I think that others have said this as well, is that the very act of where you choose to focus your lens as an artist is a political act. And for me, my my art practice really comes from um, wanting to be in conversation with that world and also wanting to tell stories that move and entertain and illuminate. And I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive. And I have a dual foundation 
um, which is theater and activism. You know, my mother, who was an activist, had me walking picket lines from the time I was five years old. And then at night, she would take me to see theater. And so I think that I was able to assimilate the notion of those two things um, coexisting from a very early age. In the artistic world, what is it that the activist in you wants most to disrupt? Well, I think for me, um, I mostly want to disrupt the notion of who belongs center stage. I, I think that for so long, when I went to the theater or when I turned on television, or even in, for, um, to a certain extent when I read books, I didn't see myself woven into the narrative in ways that felt truthful and felt representative of the life that I've led or the life that my family has led. And so I think that if I want to disrupt anything, it's the notion of who we are as black people and disrupt the notion of us um, living in some sort of binary universe in which there's only one way to tell our story. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Your work is both accessible stylistically, the language is not complicated, but it's very, very complicated thematically. I mean, you're unpacking people that are pulled in lots and lots of different directions. And you're also writing about and maybe writing for people whose lives are often treated in two-dimensional terms, but they're you know, in no way two-dimensional. I mean, this gets to what you were saying about who needs to be centered in the work. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about you know, who you write about, how you write about them, and who you're writing for. And how does this combination of complexity and accessibility factor in in how you approach your craft. Yeah, I wish I had a really simple, easy response to that question, but I think it's, it's I, not surprising that you don't, I should say. You know, I really I, I I really I really don't because I, I my place comes to me in so many different ways and the characters speak to me in in many different ways and I can't tell you why Finally, I sit down and I choose to write about those particular characters other than, you know, I can't shake them. And in terms of form and content, I think that each story um, really dictates the form that it it takes. People often say that my work is um, nomadic and stylistically and that, you know, I can move very agilely between drama and comedy. But I think that it's really reflective of the world that we live in. And that going back to when I was interviewing women in East Africa is that I was struck by how easily women who had been through some of the most horrific trauma could a half an hour later be laughing. And I found that that tension was fascinating. And I think that when I'm looking for subjects I'm to write about, I'm always looking for that tension in them, those people who move between grandiosity and despair. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that phrase, people who move between grandiosity and despair. I'm going to I'm going to write it down and <laughs> steal it from you one of these days. Oh, yes, um, please. Can we talk a little bit about the staging of your work? I mean, it's not it's not a playwright's obligation to, you know, make sure their work is accessible, 
but accessibility is so important, it seems, in all aspects of the way you approach both how you gather your information and how it translates. Do you think about, you know, whether the people that you write about or people like the people you write about have opportunities to see your work in production onto the page and, and, and into a play and where you kind of fit into that process? Yeah, I'm constantly thinking about it, and it's a real conundrum because theater as it exists in the proscenium is immensely expensive, yeah. which makes it unfortunately sort of exclusive and not always accessible to the audiences that I'm most interested in talking to. But that said, you know, I teach a course at Columbia called American Spectacle, looking at theater outside of the proscenium. And so I'm always trying to figure out ways in which we can break convention or, you know, to use your word, disrupt um, how theater is made and where theater is, is made. And over the years, I've been trying to make a concerted effort to reach new audiences. I mean, one of the things that we did with Sweat, because we felt that it was really important for this play to be in conversation with communities other than the Broadway community, other than people who go to theaters around the country. And we did um, the public theater's first ever national tour. And we very specifically took Sweat to non-traditional venues. So we were in libraries and we were in community halls and we were in a brewery. And we went through um, five states very specifically in cities that didn't have major theaters. And that was an amazing experience. And one of the things that I want to note about that experience is during the entire time that I was sitting in the audience, I never heard a cell phone ring. And people brought their children and they sat on seats that weren't uncomfortable, but they were wrapped because there was a real hunger to engage with stories that reflected what they were going through. As a kid, my father taught in a small college in upstate New York. The most exciting night of the year was the night that we got to go watch college productions of theater. And I've seen, you know, during Harlem Week or during Summer Stage, I've seen what theater can be like in an audience of people that don't go to the theater all the time or don't go down to Broadway. And it's so surprising to watch an audience just be swept up in the performance. And so important given the kinds of work that you do to make sure that, that these folks are participants in the performance as well. That's so true. And it was really one of the truly gratifying things was seeing how people responded because so often audiences in New York are jaded and they have mm -hmm. this attitude of bring the theater to me, whereas theater is collaborative. And theater really is about an exchange of energy. And when I was on the road, I felt like people were willing to sign that contract in ways that people don't a lot of times in New York. We are, I mean, obviously, I've said it a few times, we're thrilled to have the opportunity to award you with the Langston Hughes Medal this year. And I wonder how you think about, you heard the list of people that have received it. And I wonder how you think about yourself in relationship to the literary tradition that the award recognized. I want to be really clear. I'm not, I'm not like asking what does it feel like to be mentioned in the same breath with Maya Angelou. And that's not what I'm asking about. What I'm asking about really is what does it feel like to be like the modern 
occupant of that tradition? Does it come with a sense of responsibility to to promote, to live up to a tradition, to to change or modernize a tradition? How do you th- how do you think about being in that lineage? Yeah, I mean, responsibility is such an all encompassing word, and I think within it is a kind of burden that can lead to the censorship of voice because you're constantly interrogating all of the choices that you're making. And so I tend to push away from that word and and, and its implications. But I that said, I do think that it's a tremendous honor to walk in the footsteps of giants, you know, like James Baldwin and Rita Duff and you said Edwidge Edw- Dennecott, Derek Wilcox, but and I think that if I were to like take hold of that word in my mouth, responsibility is to be truthful about the ways in which I reflect my world, and I think it's something that I share with all of those people that you mentioned earlier, and in doing so, hopefully it will have some resonance. Yeah, I mean, we've talked, I mean, or I've asked you, I guess, now that I'm sort of reflecting on the questions, I've I've kind of hemmed you in a little bit, right? Like I've talked about, you know, your responsibility to your source and and the voices and people are entrusting you with stories and and then you think about the creative process as as needing to have a certain lightness and a certain freedom. And right. um so I I I I guess I'm sort of apologizing for bringing that word a little bit in into the conversation. I mean, no need to apologize because it really allowed me to think about <laughs> the yeah. word responsibility. And I do think that what we have as artists is our quest to be free enough to tell some truth. And responsibility sometimes can be um, encumber that. I have one last kind of question that I've been thinking about asking you, and I'm going to warn you ahead of time. It's the super self-indulgent. It, it's institutionally self-indulgent. <laughs> but as I was reading through your work, you know, I started to feel that, that my college, and it's a college, you know, I've been at City College for 31 years. I came right out of my degree program as an assistant professor, fell in love with the place, and just stayed. It's got a lot of issues, my little piece of heaven up here in Harlem. But if it was a person, it might be a character in a Lynn Nottage play. You know, a, a little bit, you know, doing good work, complicated, you know, working to serve the underclass in New York, striving to produce social mobility. And I, I'm not going to ask you to comment on my own private fantasy uh, specifically about my college and your work, but what makes a good character in a Lynn Nottage play? To answer the first part of your question, City College actually is a character in a Lynn Nottage play. I went to the High School of Music and Art, which was on 135th mm-hmm. Street and Convent Avenue. And so every day yeah. I had the good fortune to see, you know, the beautiful campus. And I think that the campus wove its way into my work and, and, and comes from the Table of Joy ends with the character going to City College. It's the last mm-hmm. monologue. Um, so what makes a, a good character in a new Lynn Nottage play, um, I really think for me, um, in the process of writing, it's a character that continues to challenge me, a character that entertains me, a character that demands attention, because if you're going to live with a character for a number of years, they're going to have to be um, keep your attention and um, keep you from looking away. 
And I also think that for me, it's characters that offer me new ways of looking at things. I find that characters that most intrigue me are the ones that are most perplexing and and the most vexing. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that I have to figure out, well, why is that character doing what they're doing? And um, the play really becomes the process of me trying to understand those perplexing and frustrating characters. Well, listen, it's going to be just a joy to welcome you to campus on February 9th. I can't wait for the symposium and in particular for the ceremony. I'm going to stop calling it a ceremony and, and I'm going to start calling it a celebration. Jody Ann, I want to give you the last opportunity to, um, I've been pitching the, the Langston Hughes Festival throughout this program, but since you are um, one of the organizers of it and the moderator of of the symposium, I want to uh, give you a second to, to to pitch it yourself. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you both, the Nottage and President Boudreaux. The Langston Hughes Festival this year really is an invitation to everyone. Um, as President Boudreaux has been indicating, if you have an aunt, if you have a cousin, this is your celebration as well. We are celebrating both you, Nottage's work, as well as Langston legacy, blackness, we're inviting you to campus. Come February 9th, 2023, to both occasions, the symposium at 12.30 p.m., as well as the celebration and creative performance and tribute at the end of the day at 6 p.m. We look forward to seeing you here. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Lynn, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to talk to you about your work. Uh, You've been so generous with your time and really look forward to welcome you in person to the campus. Well, thank you. And I really greatly and profoundly appreciate this honor. The honor is ours. So to the audience, I want to thank you for listening to From a City to the World. Thanks to our guests, Jody Ann Francis, moderator of the symposium of this year's Langston Hughes Festival, and to Lynn Nottage, the recipient of this year's Langston Hughes Medal. This show was produced by Angela Harden and yours truly, Vince Boudreaux. For more information about the Langston Hughes Festival, you can also go to ccny.cuny.edu and search the phrase Langston Hughes Festival. I want to thank one more time our two guests.